0: Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand, and we would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels.
1: You know, it's easy for our faith to deconstruct. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how my faith deconstructed. How I pivoted from a strong, sort of aggressive, Bible-beating posture to someone who ended up laying on the ground, with my image of God burned to the ground. I was someone that couldn't understand how to reconcile what my heart was telling me about the world with the religion that prevented women from serving in any capacity in my church, that exiled LGBTQ members, that supported passages promoting genocide in the Old Testament. I was someone that had gone from an unquestionable religious ideology, which is fundamentalism in a nutshell, to someone of no faith. It's easy for our faith to deconstruct. The reconstruction of our faith is a process. I talked about how I stumbled upon Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And I learned that the stream of my faith is broader than I had thought. And then I started reading other authors and theologians and about 20 years ago I stumbled upon a book by Brian McLaren called A New Kind of Christian. And I read that book, and I loved that book. And it was really important for me on my path towards reconstruction. It's one of the reasons I wanted to introduce the book to our progressive theology book study that's going on right now. And there's a paragraph in that book that 20 years ago changed the way that I look at my faith. For me at the time, it was mind blowing. Maybe I should have thought of religion this way before, but I never had. I think no one will ever accuse me of necessarily being perceptive, especially Kate. But I needed to have read this in my path toward reconstruction. The background of the passage is that there's a professor talking to students, and the professor tells the students that they went back in time to the 15th century and a medieval worldview, well, that no one would believe that they could be Christians. He said, if you told them that you didn't believe in the Pope, and you didn't accept that kings ruled by divine right, and you didn't believe that God created a universe consisting of concentric spheres of ascending perfection, and if you let it slip that maybe you agreed with Copernicus that the earth rotated around the sun, well, you would have surely been tried as a heretic and burned at the stake. It was a mind-blowing passage for me. The deconstruction is easy. So what I had to learn in my reconstruction is, well, that Christians and Jews have been reimagining God and their religion for a long, long time. I'm gonna say that again. Christians and Jews have been reimagining God and their religions for a long, long time. For 25-year-old John, this was really, really freeing to realize that what I'd been taught at church about women leading the church or about LGBTQ folks, or similar issues that made my heart hurt, that those may not always be the official church position, that may not always be the official church doctrine, whatever that means, well that was really, really freeing for me. And so I hope this realization that we talk about today may be freeing for you if you're sort of in that reconstruction mode. So, for someone reconstructing their faith to realize that when we engage in the process of imagining God or reimagining God for our own world, we're using wisdom. We're always respectful of the past. However, we need to remember that we aren't always meant to recreate it and live in it. We always need to be tied to our ancient tradition, that's really important. But we shouldn't expect our ancient tradition to do all the heavy lifting for us. And this is really important. And I hope if you take anything away from what I say today, you take this away. The process of adapting the past, the process of reimagining God, is something that we can actually see happening in the Bible itself, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The biblical authors accepted their sacred responsibility to employ wisdom when engaging with their sacred texts. So what we're going to talk about today is how the authors of the Bible, the authors of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, used wisdom when engaging in their sacred traditions and changed their sacred texts to clarify what God is like in their new time and place. So again, the authors of the Christian Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, used wisdom while engaging with their sacred tradition and changed their sacred texts to clarify what God is like in their new time and place. We're gonna focus first on Judaism and how Jews over time changed their sacred texts to clarify what God is like in their new time and place. They change their scripture to accommodate their culture. Then we're gonna look at how Christians have done the same thing with the Bible. How Christian writers have changed the Bible itself to accommodate their culture. So first, Judaism and how the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament has been adapted to changing circumstances. We're gonna talk about the references to God being one God among many. Paula talked about this a little bit last week in her sermon, but I think it's important to the broader point that our scriptures themselves have been adapted to our changing circumstance. There are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that reference that the heavens are filled with gods, which presupposes and assumes then that other gods exist. That Yahweh, the Hebrew God, is one God among many. Think of Moses hiking up Mount Sinai and telling, and God telling Moses the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. The the commandment isn't, remember, there are no other gods out there. No, it's more, don't grow too attached to those other gods. Now, I know that today we oftentimes interpret gods in that context to mean money or power or something else, right? But most scholars, most historians think that God was being literal when she said that. Or look at Psalms 93.5. Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. Or look at Psalm eighty-two which portrays God as something like a CEO presiding over a heavenly court of divine beings. Psalm 82 begins with this, God presides in the great assembly. God renders judgment among the gods. The same idea exists in Job 1 and Job 2 as well. Now listen, the biblical authors here are simply exp- simply speaking of God in ways that reflect their experience in a world where many gods are a given. They are processing their experiences of God through the limits of their world, through the limits of their world view. And one of the great and most puzzling features of Judaism is how the transition from a God among many to monotheism happens. We see the idea of one God among many in the Old Testament. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it's like, poof, we're in a new world of monotheism. But we do see some movement toward a single God in some of the later written books of the Old Testament. And some of the books that scholars think were written later in time. Isaiah 44 6 says, This is what the Lord says. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Jeremiah uses similar language. The concept of monotheism has not been universally adopted, but we can see in later books of the Old Testament more and more references to God being the only God as opposed to God being the first among many. Now, we're not yet in the full-blown world of monotheism, but we're sort of getting there. Now I want to take a 30 second history break. I promise I won't go any longer than that, so please try to stay with me. King David reigned about 1,000 years before Jesus, 1,000 BC, and we use round number dates because they're easier to remember. A little after the reign of King David, again about 1,000 BC, Israel split in half. The Northern Kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians about 700 BC. But the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah continues, and it continues until it's conquered by the Babylonians in about 500 BC, 500 years before Jesus. And many Jews were forced to move and to live in exile in Babylon. And this period of exile is critically important to understanding the Jewish story. It's critically important to understanding the Jewish story. Jews were living in a foreign land without their king, seeing the capital of Jerusalem sacked, seeing the temple raised to the ground, and this forever impacted the Jewish nation. Again, exile is critically important to understanding the Jewish story. The people in Babylon asked, has God turned God's back on the Jews? Was Yahweh actually the true God? Right? They're difficult questions for people living in a really difficult situation, surrounded by people following a different religion and different gods, and thinking that maybe, perhaps, their God had abandoned them. So what did they do? They adapted. They had compiled a book that evaluated the past and gave them a vision for the future. This book was an assembly of other books, some of which had been floating around in one form or another. But it was the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament. It was the creation of an officially sanctioned book that people could look to, people could appeal to, a book designed to galvanize and bring together strangers in a strange land, to quote the Robert Heinlein book. Right? The Bible, as we know, wasn't always part of the life of ancient Israel. It was created and became part of their life, though, when the need arose with the effective removal of God's presence from the people that were then in exile. So ironically, the thing that threatened ancient Israel's existence, the exile, is the thing that led to the creation of a sacred book that actually ensured Israel's survival. Jews would become the people of the book. And that book helped them carry forward a tradition much further than I would guess most Jews would have imagined 2,500 years ago. And it hasn't hurt Christianity either. Okay, end of history lesson, I promise. But it does demonstrate one of the overriding points of today's message that even the creation of the Hebrew Bible is an adaptation, is necessary to clarify what God is like in their new time and their new place. Okay, let's shift for just a second. Once the Hebrew Bible is put into writing, there are new issues that come up, like the need to be translated into other languages, such as Greek. Now the Greeks were really, really sophisticated. We've talked in the past about how Greece was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. And they had brilliant translators. And these translators discovered some issues that maybe flew under the radar a little bit previously with the Old Testament. At a minimum, it's important to know that translations are a great place for religious groups to introduce sort of course correctives to change some things that might be embarrassing if they don't get fixed. Here's an example. Genesis 2.2 in Hebrew says, God finished the work of creation on the seventh day. Now, this might suggest that God actually worked in the morning of the seventh day and then took the afternoon off. But that would imply that God broke on page one, God's own commandment not to do work on the Sabbath. So the Greek translator stepped in and they made a small change. God finished God's work on the sixth day. Now, God doesn't contradict herself. Problem solved. Or Exodus 2410 in Hebrew says rather casually that Moses and a party of more than 70 Israelites actually saw God. Now this is a problem because no one is actually supposed to see God. So the Greek translator shifted the focus. Now Moses and those 70 people saw the place where the God of Israel stood. These examples illustrate an important point. The Hebrew Bible itself, the sacred text, has been modified again and again over time to clarify what God is like in their time and place, they change the scriptures to accommodate the culture. And then we get to Jesus. The story of Jesus transforms the ancient tradition, and the story of Jesus reimagines God. And we see the same thing happening in the New Testament the writers of the New Testament adapting their view of God to their own changing circumstances. But first, an aside. We've talked for the last couple of weeks about how central the concept of wisdom is to the Jewish mindset and correspondingly, how wisdom isn't really emphasized in the Christian worldview. Perhaps one reason for this is thinking that a life of faith as a set of rules with clearly defined and never changing boundaries is easier, it's more comfortable It's nice to live in a world of black and white, but the Christian faith does not only paint in two colors. Think of this. The gospel records almost 40 parables. They're all distinct and not a single one of them, not a single one of them has a clear and obvious meaning. Parables can be obscure. They can be difficult to grasp. There can be multiple meanings, they can be cryptic, they can be ambiguous, right? If Jesus's main goal was to be crystal clear, he wouldn't have introduced thick layers of ambiguities and potential misunderstandings. But that's what Jesus did because Jesus is a sage. Jesus tells us us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a fig tree, a sower sowing seeds hidden treasures, yeast, wheat, a fishing net, a narrow door, a dinner party, sheep, coins, headstrong children, a widow, a tax collector, and on and on. Jesus was clearly more interested in painting portraits, creating a vision, and overturning conventional thinking. You do that by telling a story that leaves people thinking, that maybe leaves them uncomfortable, Moved, motivated, interested. Perhaps we are meant to use wisdom and interpret these stories for our time and place. Maybe that's the intent of teaching in parables. Jesus taught using wisdom. On Mount Sinai, God said, do not murder. God said, do not commit adultery. Divorce only for good reason. Fulfill your vows. An eye for an eye. Jesus doesn't dismiss these commands, but he does take them to a deeper place. He reinterprets the commands. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to you, but I say to you something else. Now murder includes hatred. Adultery includes adulterous thoughts, and one should turn the cheek instead of retaliating. Jesus interprets the ancient law for a new day. This is the wisdom process that we've been talking about. Okay. Now, how many gospels are there? There's four. There's Matthew. There's Mark. There's Luke. There's John it's important to know that each of the gospel writers adapted their own gospel as they saw fit to address the specific needs of their specific community that they were writing for. They're not simply reporting what happened. Each gospel is its own unique retelling of the life of Jesus centered on the needs of each writer's community of faith. That's engaging in wisdom, friends. Each gospel is tailored for an individual audience, which means the writers were reading the situation. They were reading the room and they adapted the story for that purpose. According to the reigning theory, Mark was written first and Mark was used as the basis for Matthew and Luke. And Matthew and Luke adjusted Mark's gospel as they saw fit either by changing Mark to suit themselves, or including scenes that Mark didn't include. The gospel writers were adapting and shaping the relatively recent history of Jesus of Nazareth, even freely editing the work of others in order to present Jesus meaningfully to their own communities of faith. For example, Matthew's Gospel has by far the most citations to the Old Testament than any of the other Gospels. Matthew takes Mark's Gospel and adds a bunch of Old Testament references and citations. Why? Well, Matthew's audience is largely Jewish, meaning Jewish followers of Jesus would want to see that Jesus was deeply connected to the Jewish tradition. For example, Matthew's birth story closely aligns to Moses's early life. Both escape edicts to massacre male babies, both flee from local authorities and local rulers, Herod or Pharaoh, depending on the story, and then both finally are able to return home. Now John, on the other hand, is the maverick of the four. Much of what is found in John, is not found in the other gospels. Jesus, in in John, John pits Jesus against the Jews rather than specifically the religious elite, the Pharisees. And that's what the other gospels did is they actually usually would pit Jesus against the Pharisees where in John, Jesus is often pitted against the Jews. Jews in the book of John fail to understand Jesus. They persecute Jesus They seek to kill Jesus. These passages have come across as anti-Semitic. Understandably so. And historically, they've been used to vilify Jews. But I think that charging John with anti-Semitism doesn't actually cut it. That term is charged. That term is bound up with a lot of history that was not relevant for John's time. Many scholars actually think John's language gives us a window into the struggles of his own community. John was written when Jewish-Gentile division was beginning. John's so-called anti-Jewish rhetoric was a commentary on his own day and the beginning of the struggle between Jew and Gentile. So in some ways, John's phrasing Was an act of wisdom. He was translating the Jewish or the Jesus story for his own situation. But here's the key supporting John's rhetoric today is not a sign of faithfulness to Scripture, but it's a failure to accept the sacred responsibility that we have today of using wisdom and making the ancient text our own for our own time when we reproduce John's rhetoric today after centuries and centuries of Jewish persecution and suffering, which happened after John wrote the gospel well, we're, we're not reading our moment. When we do that, we're not exercising wisdom. The life of faith has always been about respecting this tension between there and then and here and now and wisdom is the key to living in that tension. Now, one thing I just want to be clear on, we are a Christian church that believes that Jesus is God incarnate. We view our faith in light of Jesus as our Messiah, the same Jesus that moved into the neighborhood, the same Jesus that taught us to love God, love our neighbor, to love ourselves, the same Jesus that was killed, crucified, died, and was buried, the same Jesus that when the tomb was rolled away, was not in the tomb. Now, that does not mean that our pews are only for people who share those exact same beliefs. Many of us have come from churches that exclude people. Everyone is welcome at our table. No matter your doubts, no matter your beliefs, your race, your gender, your reconstruction, your deconstruction, we mean every word of the ethos that we read each week. But we also just want to make sure we've had a lot of new faces turning in, tuning in lately. And we just want to reiterate that for our staff and our leadership, Jesus is our true north. But that doesn't mean we're done with the hard work around our faith. Because the process of adapting the past and reimagining God is something that we see in the Bible itself, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And now, this sacred responsibility to imagine or reimagine God in light of the present moment, in light of our faith in Jesus in God's, or in, in light of our faith in Jesus as God's Messiah, well that responsibility it falls to us. And that's good news. That's good news for those of us whose faith fell apart because the past image of God ended up with us laying on the ground with our image of God burned to the ground. It's great news. And it's happened since the birth of our faith. We are called, guys, we are called to reimagine God for our present postmodern world. And I wanna conclude with a question that drives at all of this. That's as important a question as I can think of. At what point do we cross the line from adapting a tradition so that it can survive to compromising that tradition beyond recognition? That's the central question for me. And it's been the struggle of Jewish and Christian theologians since the beginning of these great religions. And I suspect that many of you that grew up in more conservative church environments may be asking yourself that question over and over and over again. And so I've thought about this question a lot. A lot, a lot. For me, the key to this tension, the answer to this tension is in two different areas. One, the answer needs to be rooted in love. Mm -hmm. Jesus said that the great commandment is to love God, love our neighbors and love ourselves. We need to be rooted in love. And second, we need to be rooted in community by living in community with other committed Christians committed to using our wisdom to live in accordance with Jesus's words and actions we can wrestle with these questions and use the Bible and use our collective wisdom to engage in the sacred tradition of clarifying what God is like in this time and in this place. And that's something that we're all called to engage in. So for me, this gives me hope for those that have deconstructed in their faith. I hope this gives you hope. To know that God is bigger than whatever parameters we've tried to put around God. That it's okay to reimagine God in light of the present moment. In light of our faith in Jesus. And this is an invitation into community with us. Because we need each other. We need to engage in collective wisdom. And when we engage using our collective wisdom to engage with our faith. We're doing what Jews and Christians have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And ultimately it's what we're all called to do. The future of our faith actually depends on it. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for its insight, its wisdom, And thank you for how it provokes us to find our answers to spiritual questions, cultivating your wisdom within us. Thank you for showing us that wisdom, not answers, is the Bible's true subject matter. And help us always to root ourselves in love and community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page, every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.